And welcome to a new episode of Third Degree Burn. I'm nonchalant Nigel Spink, the Burn fan in Japan. <laughs> and I'm jovial John Hyatt. I am the Burn fan in Southern California. Yes, hello, John. Hey, Nigel. Great to have you. And it's good to hear you, too. Yeah, this is awesome. We've yeah. been chatting about this for a bit, so this is fun. We have, yeah. Okay, so... What are we going to do right now? So together, under the subtitle of another sideburn feature, that's what we're calling these uh, little episodes where one or two of us get together and discuss works of John Byrne. We're going to be covering the past adventures of Marvel's mutant team. That's John Byrne's X-Men, The Hidden Years. That's really cool. I'm really glad about this. This is going to be very interesting to revisit it after 20 years because I haven't looked at this since uh, it first came out. That's right. Yeah. 20 years ago. Yeah. Or just over now. Mm, yeah. Did you did you buy them all originally? I did. From the uh, yeah off the shelf, as they say, or yeah, off the stand. Yeah. Yeah, I had a direct shop, and they, they set them aside for me, and I um, collected them every month. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep, same for me. Yeah. Actually, it was one of the only titles I was reading at that time. Uh, this was this time, the end of the 90s, was yeah, not so good for me with comics. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, the, I think the only other one I was reading was the Buziak Perez uh, Avengers volume. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, uh, well, it shows you how much I kind of lost touch with the with the comics there. I didn't realize when Busiak started up the Avengers run that he did. Uh, I'd cancelled Avengers after that horrible crossing thing. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, I just kind of lost touch with what was happening. And so I, I didn't know that uh, Busiak had started doing Avengers with Perez or else I would have picked it up at the time. I've, I've got it all now, but I kind of, I, I went searching for back issues later when I found out about it. So I think the only other comic I was reading at this time would have been John Byrne's Amazing Spider-Man Volume 2. Hmm. Uh, you know, and I think at this time I was also picking up, I think X-Men or uh, Spider-Man Chapter One came out at this time. Yeah, or just before maybe. Yeah, I, I didn't bother with that. I didn't get it. It, it doesn't get a very good, uh, it's not got a very good reputation, that has it. People don't like it, but, uh, you know, I, I found it okay and yeah. I found it interesting, you know, yeah, and kind of it was it was interesting you yeah. know it was just a nice little retake of that i mean it's not really much different than what burn did here in x-men hidden years mm. by creating these extra stories except yeah. that john was just retelling the first year of spider-man's uh adventures yeah yeah from a different angle uh -huh. yeah yeah i think i've got one issue of those uh, uh chapter zero it was called and and, oh, yeah. and really it the particular issue I've got, Spider-Man's not really in it as such. It's kind of covering three of the villains' uh, backstories as to how they turned bad or whatever, yeah? I think it's Vulture, Sandman, 
and maybe Craven or anyway, one of the yeah. others. Yeah, Craven so was one of them. it's mainly about them. Spider-Man's not really in it as such, but that's the only one of of that run that I that I have. Mm. And then of course, okay. and then of course, he started doing the Spider-Man Amazing Volume Two. So I collected those while Byrne was on it. Yeah, right. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. That's that's what was happening around that time. Okay, but what's your? Can I ask you what's your history with regard to the X Men? When did you first sort of find out about them or start reading them? I started with X Men One O Seven. I remember it clearly. Yeah. Because of that gorgeous Cockrum cover with the Star Jammers, mm. and it was the first. X-Men that I had picked up. I don't know why I picked it. I guess I saw it on the spinner rack and the cover captured me and I bought it and uh, that I was hooked. Yeah. And I was able to find a couple of back issues then uh, probably back to, I, I, I remember I was able to get 106 and maybe 105 and then later I was able to get other copies of other things. But yeah, that started me right there, and then and then John Byrne took over in 108. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, that was um, that was just the the start with that, and I just fell in love with the characters. The mm. I, I you know so that when I don't recall when 107 came out, probably 77 by then mm, maybe. Mm, sounds about right. Six. Yeah. yeah. So I was 11 or 12 years old, and I think what really interested me at the time not my thinking then wasn't that it was all about the action and the gorgeous art yeah yeah but as I look back i think now because i was more of a, a kid that enjoyed reading and stories and madeline la angle type books and ray bradbury stuff so i enjoyed mm -hmm. reading a lot so i think that claremont was putting a lot into the stories was what probably hooked me on them so quickly because there was actually substance to the stories that were happening. It wasn't just Hulk smash kind of stuff, right? you know, or just the random villain of the, of the month kind of popping in. Mm -hmm. There was threads going through and, and there was character and it was interesting. And so, so I think that's what really captured me. And yeah. I was a fan throughout the entire Claremont uh, burn run for sure. And then probably up until around mid 200s. Uh, and then life kind of took me in different directions. So I sporadically mm -hmm. checked in with books from then on. Right. Yeah. Okay. So you started with the all new, all different X-Men. Yes, they were all. Yeah. And they were bi-monthly at that time. Right. Yeah. What? what's your history with the original x-men because obviously we're going to be talking about these guys in the hidden years yep actually uh so i was able at uh, old bookstores uh they occasionally had stacks of comic books in there that i that you could buy so i was able to find old copies uh, i don't have them anymore i've through life thing uh you know all of those are gone yeah. but uh they um i was able to get older copies of the original x-men from like late 40s through uh the run uh, right. through the end of the run there and uh leading up to that because they were cheap you know nickel a piece or mm -hmm. something and uh, so i was able to get them so i and you know uh, 
the very beginning of the X-Men. Oh, and then there was uh, the reprints in, what was it, Amazing Fantasy, where they started with issue one. And I was able to buy those uh, and get those. But right. uh, really, my interest in the uh, the original X-Men took started with, like, issue 49. And uh, because oh, okay. that's when they really started in with the Roy Thomas years, the Neil Adams, who took over in issue 56. The art was just fantastic. I mean, just great stuff. So yeah, um, that was uh, that was. So I am familiar with the original uh, teammates. Right. Mm. Yeah. How about mm. you? Well, yeah. So my history is a little bit different in that I started with uh, the original team uh, right from the the first issue. Wow. Um, when I was about eight, I think I'd be about eight or nine, uh, in Britain, they started reprinting some of the Marvel stories in a black and white form. Uh, and this was when Marvel was just coming in to Britain in a big way. And so I started buying these comics that they put out where they had reprints of the stories. And one of the first ones was called Fantastic. The comic was called Fantastic. And it had it. It covered three uh, different titles. It had Thor, Iron Man, and X Men, and they started them all from the very beginning. So yeah, I uh, I read X Men more or less in order from number one in those comics, which were weekly. And X Men were my favorite at that time. Yeah, there was something about the group book. Seem more exciting and action packed than such as Thor and Iron Man at the time, especially with them, you know, at the beginning of their runs. Well, you probably know what it's like if you've seen some of the really old Thor or Iron Man. And uh, then I pretty much read the X Men right through to around about issue 40, maybe about 45. And then that comic, that comic finished. And then I, I didn't read X-Men again until I started reading the, uh, the new, the new uh, X-Men from, I think the first issue I got was 97 okay. with, uh, it had Cyclops and Havoc facing off against one another on the yep. cover yep. On, an air, on, on an airport runway. Yeah. When with like three of the X-Men in the background coming in, uh, that was the first all new, all different X-Men that I discovered um and so from then on yeah i started reading the new stuff uh in pretty much the same way as you did as i and and so on and so on yeah and then into the claremont and burn run which yeah was excellent and uh i bought all of those of course i carried on with the x-men even after burn left and uh, I probably stopped reading it round about the same time as you did, uh, about 200, but maybe not for the same reasons, yeah. It was, for me, it was Marvel that went in a different direction, and I thought, I'm not going there. <laughs> uh, the X-Men have been changing slowly over the, you know, over the years from round about 150 onwards. And I was still reading it, but it was no longer a favorite of mine. And it started to, it, they started to run a lot of 
sort of single stories uh, that were maybe maybe fun, maybe interesting sometimes, but it, it felt like it wasn't going anywhere. And then they started to pull all these characters were coming through from alternate futures, you know, like Rachel and Bishop and people like that. And I, I didn't like that really. Uh, and then when they brought Magneto in as uh, <laughs> supposedly like the new the new mentor in place of Prefer, I thought, no, 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 Magneto is a villain, always will be. You know what are they doing? And I uh, I stopped it then. Yeah, that was the end of my X Men reading. Yeah, yeah. they. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, it was sporadic for me. You know, like I didn't pick them up regularly, but there were occasionally <laughs> things that I stories that popped in uh you know when burn dropped into west coast avengers i enjoyed that little run and uh some other things here and there so you know but not not a not not like i was in the 70s and 80s where it was like i was with bated breath waiting for my mom <laughs> to bring the mail home because i had subscriptions to certain issues yeah. and i couldn't wait to get them in that brown paper wrapper and pull it out and read it mm and uh, uh, and share it with my friends. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, for me, uh, the, the 70s and 80s decades were, were the best. Yeah, definitely for Marvel, I think. Some of the best stuff is in those decades. Yeah. 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 That's when I was really yeah, buying a lot of the titles on a regular basis. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, yeah, one thing I like about the original X-Men I mean, it, it's probably just me, but when they first started, um, the way the stories were written and the situation, it sort of gave a, it sort of gave off the fact that mutants were mutants were a, very much a minority. Mm -hmm. You know, there weren't that there weren't many around, and and so they they had to find them, which is why Professor X had the cerebro and everything. And of course, they had to find them to try and get them on the good side before the bad guys like Magneto got hold of them. But that there weren't many of them. Uh, and like over the years and years that they were doing the X-Men, it seemed like just more and more mutants seemed to be crawling out the woodwork until it got to a stage where like every other person is a mutant. And and I thought there's too many mutants. <laughs> I preferred it the way it was at the beginning, where mutants were only one in every so many, I don't know, thousand or even million, and uh, you know they were rare. And that's how I preferred it, you know, with like the X Men or, or the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants trying to get in touch with them mm -hmm. first, and you know, turn them on the good path before they could yeah. be put on the bad path. Absolutely, yeah, that was. And that was one of the thing, good things about the early X-Men stories. You didn't feel like, oh, there's, well, there's mutants everywhere, you know. Uh, and, yeah, I enjoyed the, the early stories of the X-Men. Uh, I don't know whether it's because with them being teenagers as well. I mean, I was even younger to begin with, but I, I, I could sort of relate to them more because yeah. they were so younger. So you didn't get a chance to experience... Mm kind of the the x-men that we're dealing with in hidden years so after they got their new costumes and the roy thomas neil adams when did you finally get yes. to yeah. uh, connect with that team because it was a little bit of a growth process there they they grew a little bit after right that. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, as I say, I I read X Men basically from the beginning up to about issue forty four or forty five. So that I read it to the supposed death of Professor X, and then they got their sort of individual costumes, and they fought against. I remember, well, I remember the grotesque story, of course, because that's where Professor X supposedly died. Uh, there was a couple of stories after that, and then they had the story with where Magneto uh, got the evil mutants back together again, including Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, you know, the one where the Avengers yep. came in at the end. And that's where I kind of finished with X-Men for a few years. The early 70s, I didn't read any more X-Men. So I originally missed the Adams stuff coming out. I found it later uh, because, yeah, in Britain, again, reprints, they used to reprint some of the stories in what they called annuals, hardback-covered books, which we usually used to get for Christmas mm. presents. And they were in full colour, which was better than the, the comics, which were black and white. Uh, and that's where I first encountered the Adams artwork. I got a, I got a couple of X-Men annuals for Christmas. And, and those, the stories inside happened to be the Adams stories. There was the one with the Sentinels and the one with Sauron. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was the first time I, I saw the Adams artwork and like saw how things had changed yeah and i thought ooh, this looks pretty good you know when did this happen and i enjoyed those stories too but they never used to they never used to put in the full story it, it you know i i'm sure it wasn't the complete story that we got in the annuals there were like pages missing and they'd start the story off maybe like halfway through it maybe they'd missed an issue or something like that as I found out later, when I had chance, when I had chance to kind of read the, the Adams stuff yeah. properly, yeah. But yeah, the artwork definitely impressed me uh, when I saw it for the first time. But then again, I still didn't realize at that time in the early seventies that that X Men after issue sixty six had gone to just reprinting the old stories yeah. again, which in a way was nice. Because when I did find that out, I thought, oh, well, I haven't missed that much then between uh, when I last was reading them and now with the new, all new, all different X-Men. I thought, I haven't missed so many stories then because they haven't been happening as such. Um, but again, I originally missed the initial uh, event of giant-sized X-Men when, when, he, when he got the new team together. Uh, as I say, the first all new, all different X-Men I bought was number 97. So that was my first you know, realization that X-Men had changed a little bit and they had new members. And then I had to kind of hunt back for the, uh, for the back yeah. issues just from the beginning of that run. Yeah. And I did have a copy at one time of the actual giant sized X-Men. Uh, I have read it, but I, I don't have, I don't have it now. It was like a little pocketbook version of the giant size X-Men story. Is that the one uh, where it was like a regular yeah. book and you had a couple of panels on each page in black and white? 
uh yeah it was it was black and white and it was a it was like a miniature size though it was like a mini book what do they call those now the that's it yeah digest it was a digest yeah and it was for the uh, as i say for the giant size x-men story where they have to rescue the original x-men from krakow and yeah but i don't have that anymore that's some good stuff well you know um you know, once you, as you know, and some of our listeners may or may not know, after you stop listening or reading, being able to read books, you know, they, the X-Men quote unquote broke up and they were doing yeah. um, their own interesting duo adventures for a few issues. And then about right. issue 49 or so is when they kind of brought them back together, I think because there was a new writer, mm-hmm. uh, Arnold Drake took over and then we um that's when it kind of started in he wrote for a few issues before roy thomas took over and um that's how we got introduced to um polaris in issue 50 with yes. that yeah. amazing yeah. Starenko cover at, that's one of my favorite covers uh, all comic right. books is that cover of polaris uh there standing there with surrounded by all her crackle and uh, all of that right. so it's really phenomenal uh, i do have to say though i'm just cutting in here on you that that is the only good thing about that issue art wise i <laughs> think i don't like the steranko artwork inside i think it's oh, awful. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah i because uh, like, I, i've got all these stories now in uh, essentials yes so they're in black and white I mean, I don't know if with the originals being colour, maybe the colour makes it a little bit nicer to look at. But, yeah, that Steranko artwork that he did in black and white, it's pretty gruesome, I think. <laughs> so the cover, yeah, the cover is the highlight of issue 50, I and, think. And yet when, you're, when you're coming into uh, uh, a, few, a few issues later and then you get Neil Adams, I mean, that pales everything in comparison. Don Heck uh, was also a, the artist for a couple of issues, and you know, and, you know, they 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 service they did they did the story and they did fine, but once Neil Adams took over yeah. to issue fifty six, you're like blown away, and then you got the writing of Roy mm-hmm. Thomas, and uh, it was just really really phenomenal. So it took us all the way up to sixty six was an amazing uh, run there, and oh, and you know, we got to mention inker tom palmer because uh he was the inker on yes. the book with fern yes that's right yeah there you've got the same inker yeah coming yeah. back so that's, that's amazing um, mm-hmm. but yeah the neil adams artwork was definitely a cut above what we'd had previous yeah, yeah. and so after issue 66 uh there was a few months break and then they released an annual uh, 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 X-Men Annual 1, which reprinted Avenger or uh, an, um, X-Men 9 and 11 uh, from those. Right. And then from that point, uh, it continued on with the numbering for um, through issue 93 with reprinting issues from issue 11. So 12, 13 and on. And they were double sized issues. A lot of them, um, they had two right. stories in each one. So but in the meantime, the X-Men were still making appearances. 
yeah, true. Yeah, one or two guest appearances. Yeah, yeah. and Beast had his own uh, adventures and amazing adventures for six issues, mm. uh, which is how we ended up with uh, his furry Beast. They yeah. guest starred yeah. in uh, The Incredible Hulk, Spider-Man, Marvel Team-Up, Avengers, well, or mm. Magneto was in Avengers. We're out. So the Wolverine, Wolverine was introduced in 1881. He wasn't an X-Men at the time, but he, uh, mm-hmm. he did become one. And then uh, Captain America, uh, Defenders, and Giant Size Fantastic Four. So, All right. I didn't know about some of those last few that you mentioned, Captain America and uh, Defenders. Oh, mind you, yeah, Defenders. I do recall something about Professor X being in yeah, Defenders. That's story. when uh, Magneto was de-aged but, to a baby. Yes, by yeah, to a Alpha. baby, yeah. But, so the X-Men was in that as well? It wasn't just Professor so it X. wasn't the X-Men team uh, and all of these. It was members of the teams right. throughout. Ah, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I remember the one, I think it's the team up with spider-man and then uh about the time that uh, so that leads us up to 75 and about the time that giant size x-men was coming out i iceman and angel were forming the champions over in los angeles that's right yeah yeah (laughs) which i which i did buy Uh, yeah i've got all the champions i love the champions (laughs) really did well so that's a lot there so here we are now Mm -hmm. we're up to X-Men Hidden Years. Now, um, uh, Brian usually does such a great job of finding all this backstory. Um, (laughs) And I was trying to find some stuff and I couldn't figure it out. Did you find anything about why John Byrne wanted to do this in-between period? Uh, I've not found anything out myself uh, about why he would want to do it. The only thing I could, I, I'm only kind of guessing here, is that maybe in his younger days he was a fan of X Men, perhaps, and he perhaps thought, well, you know, there's a gap between the last actual adventure they had as the original team and the new team starting, and he perhaps just thought, I wonder what. You know what would have happened between then and now, as it were, if they'd have carried on um, with the stories, and that he maybe, because as he does, he gets these ideas for different characters forming in his brain, and then he probably just got a few stories together and thought, yeah, I'd like to do that, and sort of fill in the gap historically. I can't, yeah, I don't know. Is that I don't know of any other real <laughs> reason why he. He decided to do it. I mean, he was also, I mean, Neil Adams was one of his sort of mentor, if you like, or artists. And and with Adams having worked on the original team before Byrne kind of started at Marvel, that's another connection. And he perhaps thought, well, yeah, Neil Adams' X-Men was going well. Why did they stop it? (laughs) There was a lot more potential for more stories, et cetera, et cetera. And so, again, it inspired him to write these extra stories to fill in the gap. He does have that little write-up in the back of issue one, uh, but, um, you know, uh, during what started the process. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Where he mentions about yeah, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. I am not. I am not these people. Yeah, I am not Neil Adams. Not Roy Thomas. I am. I'm not, not John, even John Byrne. I am. Not, I'm not John <laughs> Byrne. Yeah, he's not the Byrne he was in the seventies, which is true, I suppose. Yep. Yeah. 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 And finally, I like the last bit. I am not Tom Palmer either, but as it turns out, I don't have to be <laughs> because he's yeah. here again. Yeah. Well, shall we get into the issue? Yeah, I was just going to say, shall yeah. we get into it? Yeah. So, um, as I said, I've written the synopsis. Um, so let's just go over the usuals. So X-Men Hidden Years, issue number one. As it says, brand new adventures with Marvel's premier mutant team. Now, let me just see. This was cover dated December 1999, yeah. I believe. And it was, let's see, it was on the stands at $3.50. $5.25 Canadian. Yeah, I can't remember what it was in, in English money. Um, other things. Well, other things that Byrne was doing at the time, the only thing that I'm aware of is Amazing Spider-Man Volume 2, number 12, came out also in December 1999. He was the artist on that. I don't know if you know of anything else he was doing. Not off the top of my head, but we can look it up while you're doing your synopsis. Okay, well... Right, this issue, it was a 48-page issue, 38 pages of story, and the team, the creative team was John Byrne and Tom Palmer, writer and artists. Greg Wright was the colorist. Jason Liebig was the editor, and Bob Harris, editor-in-chief. There doesn't appear to be anything for a letterer on the inside of the comic itself so i don't know if tom palmer lettered it or not it doesn't actually state mm. that mm. but that was the the team anyway yeah, even uh, mike doesn't have a letterer mm, now there's no letterer mentioned inside and now as you say it's a big issue yeah yeah 38 pages of story. And the way Byrne has written it, it's basically split into three parts. And so uh, that's how I've written the synopsis as well. So I thought I'd cover each part okay. separately. And so we can just, men after each part of the synopsis, we can just mention a little bit before moving on to the next one. Also, I have a special hidden extra synopsis there's a synopsis within Ooh. a synopsis here yeah but anyway let's get started with the first one so the first part <clears throat> excuse me the first part of the synopsis is just entitled epilogue and what it is it just covers the first six pages recounting the events of the final few pages in x-men number 66 so professor x lies in a coma following the events of X-Men 65, in which he used his mutant brain power to repel an invasion of Earth by the alien Xenox. The professor's able to send a message mentally before he loses consciousness, telling the X-Men to seek out Bruce Banner. So the X-Men fly out to Las Vegas area and, and uh, they're looking for Banner. 
and they find him. <laughs> but unfortunately, due to certain things like uh, Major Talbot and the army sticking their noses in, he gets turned into the Hulk. So now they have to deal with fighting the Hulk. And as the X-Men battle the Green Behemoth, Hulk smashes the floor, as he often does, yeah, Hulk yeah. smash. And the whole, the whole floor sort of gives way and collapses, revealing one of Banner's hidden laboratories underneath. Now, the X-Men are looking for a device which Banner has, which may help to revive Professor X. So Angel flies into the lab while the X-Men continue to distract the Hulk, and he returns with a device which they hope will be the one that can help Professor X to regain consciousness. So having got that, the group then fly off again, leaving the Hulk in peace, and they return to the X-Mansion. And then using this gamma-ray emitter, which is the device they found in the lab, yep, Professor X does regain consciousness, and everything concludes happily as it did at the end of issue 66 of the original run we see the x-men all gathered around professor x in bed and they're all talking about you know the future's going to be brighter now and we're going to save the world etc etc right which is where issue 66 had finished and that's the end of the first part of the synopsis. So, yeah, the first six pages then are just Burns' recreation, art-wise, of what happened there. But this artwork is so fabulous. I don't know what you feel about it. I mean, that the second and third pages, it's a double splash page of the X-Men yeah. trying to uh, calm down the Hulk and the Hulk's lifting this huge boulder above himself about to throw it and uh, he's not going to listen to the x-men anymore and that's just a great picture there with angel flying he's in the foreground flying across the front of the reader and then the cyclops and beast and marvel girl all trying to stop the hulk and then yeah he just continues to cover as i say that last part of the story from 66 they go back to the mansion, they they help Professor X come out of his coma, and that's it. But it's re it's just Burns' rendition of the same events. Gorgeous artwork. Very Neil Adams-y. He was definitely emulating Neil Adams there. Yeah. Yeah. And with and with Tom Palmer doing the inks, well, it's like, yeah, it's almost the same finish. Yeah, great yeah, stuff. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. And what's really cool is, is when you compare these pages to uh, issue 66, you can pick yeah. out certain panels and you can see him telling it from just a showing it from a different mm. perspective. Which... Different angle, yeah, yeah, perspective, yeah. yeah. And it seems so much more alive, doesn't it? And and action packed, even. And I mean, it was Sal Buscema who did the art for '66, so he's no right. mug. <laughs> um, <laughs> but this just, yeah, this is great. And I like the way Byrne always draws the Hulk like the early sort of Kirby mm -hmm. Hulk, with the sort of uh, yeah weird short haircut like. A, yeah, like he's got a beetle wig on, which doesn't quite fit the size of yeah, his head. Frankenstein head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 like a Frankenstein head, as you say. Yeah. So yeah, that's the first. That's the first part of this. That's what they called the epilogue. Okay, now we move on to 
the second part, which is called prologue. So we're now in the yeah, we're now in the time after all the original X-Men stories. Three days later, and we find Hank and Scott, Jean and Bobby on the mansion patio. Bobby has just announced to the others that he's decided to leave the X-Men as he no longer trusts that Professor X has his or the rest of the team's interests at heart. Uh, The others try to dissuade him, Cyclops and Hank. They're trying to talk him out of it, saying, come on, it's not that bad. But when Xavier mentally summons all of the X-Men to join him in the library... Iceman refuses to join them and he leaves. Now, that's where I'm going to cut into this synopsis with another synopsis. Now, did you know that prior to X-Men The Hidden Years number one, there was also a preview story, a 10-page story that was done by Byrne and Palmer to introduce The Hidden Years that was coming? Did you no, know that? No, I don't. Ah, right. In X-Men Volume 2, Issue 94, there were two stories. There was the story of what was happening to the X-Men team of that time in the first half of the book. And then, as I say, as a backup feature, there was a 10-page story by Byrne and Palmer and the rest of the same crew, uh, Gregory Wrightus, colorist, editor Jason Liebig, introducing this the the hidden years. And the reason I've brought this up is because in the first pages that I've just given the synopsis for, where they're trying to dissuade Bobby from leaving, he mentions something about, he says that he doesn't sort of have any faith in Professor X anymore. Mm -hmm. And he also says, if my mind hadn't been already made up by that, he states that stunt he pulled in the hangar yesterday And you're like, if you're reading this hidden, you think, what stunt? Where was that? And I was like, I found myself flipping back pages thinking, have I missed something? And I thought, no, it's not in this issue. So then I thought, oh, maybe it was in a previous old issue. And there's a little editor's note at the bottom saying, as seen in our sneak preview in X-Men 94. But I originally thought of the first X-Men 94, and I thought, well, that's the story where the new X-Men fight against uh, Neferia. I thought, so that can't be it, because this is supposed to take place long before that happened. And it was while I was delving for more info on this X-Men 94 that I found the details, you see. And luckily, there is a little synopsis that was on the Marvel Wiki for this little Mm 10-page preview. So I'm going to read that out next, and then you'll realize what he meant when he was talking about the stunt that Professor X pulled in the hangar yesterday. Yeah, so this is called Test to Destruction, and it says, In the hangar of Xavier's school for gifted youngsters, the X-Men present the new Sentinel airship to Professor X. They used parts of the recently defeated Sentinels to put the airship together. However, Professor X wants the X-Men to make sure that this technology is totally safe. Indeed, the X-Men find a fake panel which had not been there earlier. And then suddenly, Magneto appears out of thin air. He's accompanied by the Blob, Toad and Juggernaut. It doesn't take Cyclops long to figure out that their opponents are just mental projections formed by Professor X. 
Marvel Girl knew that from the beginning, that Xavier wanted her to play her part in the charade. Iceman is not amused about this spontaneous training session. He has lost confidence in the professor anyway, after Xavier faked his own death. To make matters worse, Bobby's love interest Lorna Dane seems to be developing a relationship with Alex Summers, and thus Bobby leaves the hangar angrily. Cyclops may not totally agree with the Iceman, but he did also think this training session was just cruel. And that's the synopsis for this preview. But we now know what Bobby was talking about <laughs> and why he was yeah, so angry with, with Professor X and wanted to leave. Okay, so I'll go back to the synopsis for the hidden years now. So Iceman leaves. The team gathers around Professor X in the library. A scene very reminiscent of the original opening splash page from X-Men number one. And it is only a lot more detailed, but the position of some of the characters is just spot on. Yeah, you've got Professor X in his chair. Only it's his wheelchair this time in the middle of the room. Beast coming through the window to the side. And he's almost in exactly the same pose as in X-Men 1, the original, and Angel hovering above him. Uh, Cyclops coming into the room from the back. That's pretty much the same. But then in this re-rehash of the picture, you've got Marvel Girl now, where Iceman was originally. And of course, in front of Professor X, they've now added Havoc and Lorna Dane, of course. But it's a, it's a great uh, re-recount of the original picture from X-Men number one. Angel and Havoc and Lorna Dane are shocked to hear that Iceman has left the team and that the professor dismisses the matter so casually. Angel expresses his concerns about the professor's attitude to the beast and is mentally chastised by Xavier for doing so. Professor X begins his debriefing, which is basically a visual reminder of what's happened in the pages of X-Men from around issue 41 up to issue 65. So through his X-Men's minds, Xavier sees his students uh, battle grotesque, witness his own death, which of course he knows it wasn't him, it was the biomorph changeling who was posing as the professor. He sees Iceman meet Lorna Dane, and then he sees the attack by Mesmero, who's working for Magneto. Magneto also claims to be Lorna Dane's father. Uh, Scott Summers introduces his brother Alex to the team, which leads to an encounter with a madman called the Living Pharaoh, who then, with the help of Alex's powers, mutant powers, he becomes the giant living monolith. Such a great story. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Alex escapes from the monolith, only to be captured by the oh. Sentinels, which drags the X-Men into another encounter with those mutant-hunting robots. Following that, we're introduced to Carl Lycos, a.k.a. Sauron, and he drains, he gets his power from Alex again. This heads to an adventure which takes the X-Men to the Antarctic, where Lycos appears to fall to his death. The X-Men follow to retrieve his body and find themselves in the Savage Land, where they meet Kazar once again. Remember, they'd already met him originally in X-Men 10. That was their first trip to the 
Savage Land. It started to become an annual sort mm. of vacation. <laughs> they always seem to be going to the Savage Land, and there they were again. It's here that they discover Magneto still alive, and he's created mutants from different races that inhabit the Savage Land. But his powers are not quite the way they were, and in trying to rekindle his fading powers, he goes a bit too far and he fails and he appears to be killed by his own machines when his laboratory explodes and collapses on him. After that, the X-Men return to America. They later encounter the Japanese mutant Sunfire. We see Sunfire here for the first time in Washington. And then they return to the mansion once again to find that Professor X, the real professor, is still alive. They thought he was dead up to this point. And together they prepare to defend Earth from the invading Xenox, which is why the professor has sort of hidden himself away. He was preparing mentally for this attack by these aliens, which of course they do. They do repel the aliens together. But of course, what happens is as a result of the mental strain, Professor X collapses again and goes into another mm -hmm. coma which is why the X-Men have to go and find Bruce Banner in X-Men 66, etc., etc. Okay, but then after he's recounted all that and we're up to the present once more, Professor X asks the X-Men, he says, I must ask you, though, a question. Why did you not check that Magneto was definitely dead? To which the X-Men say, well, you know, we saw... His place collapsed on him. He was crushed by X, X tons of rubble and cement and what have you. And then there was a fire. So they pretty much thought that, as Beast put it, as geology and gravity had done the job quite well for them. But Professor X is not happy with them and he gets a bit angry. He says, well, someone who has come back from death so, so many times already, you should have made sure that uh, Magneto was dead once and for all. And so he immediately orders them to return to the Savage Land right now <laughs> to try and find out if that's the truth. So that's the end of prologue. And now we move into the story going forward, part three called Once More, The Savage Land. Do you want to chat about the prologue before we go on to that part? Uh, yes, if you want to, if you've got a few things to say. Well, yeah. I... It is basically just a recount of what you've already gone through earlier, what we were talking right, about. Right, yeah, and uh, looking at some of the, because as I was flipping through some of those stories before, you know, over the mm. last week, uh, it's just really great how he, how John Byrne recreated certain panels from each of the stories to really highlight each one as part of the recap. Yes. Really yeah. cool, yeah. including that amazing image of the living monolith, which this that is probably one of my favorite right. stories of all time with the X-Men is is that the original X-Men. Such yes. a fantastic yeah. run right there. And so it was just really great yeah. to see him capture those and, and bring those out. He picked the right ones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was a, that's really is a good uh, image there. Yeah. And a picture of Lorna Dane in when she first yeah. appears as well. Yeah. Mm. yeah. The only other thing I was going to say, but it, that story involving the Xenox, I found that a bit, a bit disappointing in the original X Men run. Uh, but there's more on that to come, so I'm not saying any more. But 
they appear to have repelled the aliens and that's it. World is safe again. Yeah. Yeah. Once more, the savage land. So as the X-Men silver skycraft carrying Cyclops, Angel, Beast and Marvel Girl nears the Antarctica coastline, Angel questions Professor X's 20 demerits comment. Has he forgotten we graduated? We are not his little students anymore, states Warren. Jean has to admit she sensed that maybe since the professor revived, his mind is out of phase somehow. He's kind of acting like in the older days when they were students. Anyway, they they sort of start to look at what they're doing right now. They pass over the Ross ice shelf and approach the thermal layer which protects the savage land from the Antarctic environment. And they encounter heavy turbulence. Meanwhile, back at Xavier's school for gifted youngsters, Alex Summers and Lorna Dane are walking together in the grounds. They suddenly come upon Bobby Drake, Iceman, who says he's come back but not to join again, to give Lorna a chance to leave the X-Men with him. He considers Lorna to be his Hmm. girlfriend. When Alex tries to object, Bobby pushes him over, triggering his powers, and a battle between Iceman and Havoc ensues. Havoc appears to blast Iceman through the trees, and he fears he may have killed him. However, Iceman created an ice dome shield, which he now shatters open, a chunk of which hits Lorna in the head. Uh, This stops the fighting, of course, and Iceman tries to apologise to Lorna, and she gets angry and tells him straight she would never said she was his girlfriend, or ever would be. As they're arguing, the professor contacts them mentally. He's appalled at their display, and he orders all three of them back to the mansion, at which Bobby again refuses and walks off. Back to the Antarctica... And in the skies above Antarctica, Angel leaves the X-Men skycraft to better find a way through the cloud and turbulence around them. He finds a narrow tube of reduced turbulence, which he follows straight down. And with the skycraft in pursuit, they re-emerge through the mists into the savage land. As Cyclops looks for space to land the craft, Beast suddenly announces that they've lost rudder control, so they can't land vertically. They head quickly towards some mountains with no sign of a flat space to land. Cyclops orders Beast to raise the craft's dome, and then he uses his eye beams on widespread to clear a landing strip through the jungle. They deploy the landing gear, but upon touchdown, something snags. And the craft careens, rolls and crashes to a halt and lies still. Warren lands nearby and finds his three companions. But Jean appears to be injured. She had created a telekinetic force bubble to protect them. But the force of impact's given Jean a concussion. Before any of the X-Men can do anything, they're approached by native warriors. But not dressed like any the X-Men have encountered before in the Savage Land. Cyclops greets them and tries to communicate, but the natives fire drug-tipped darts at them, rendering the X-Men unconscious. The X-Men awaken inside the natives' village hut, where their leader states that they are amongst friends 
and that they only immobilized the X-Men until they could be sure they did not constitute a threat. Cyclops suddenly realizes that Jean is not with them, and he asks the chief, where is she? He explains that the female was injured and that her life essence was slipping away. He tells them that Jean has already passed over to the land of the dead. The three X-Men gasp in horror as they are shown Marvel Girl's empty costume. Elsewhere, dark skies hang low over a bleak terrain. We see what seems to be an ancient castle of some kind. Inside, an anthropomorphic frog creature leaps hastily through the rooms, shouting out for his master. His calls are answered as a voice tells Amphibious to calm himself. The creature announces that the X-Men have returned to the Savage Land, to which a ghastly spectre of Magneto vows revenge to be continued. And that's the end of the Hidden Years issue one. What a way to start. Yeah. Cliffhanger ending. What do you think of the... As I say, we're not going to go through this panel by panel, but there's so much gorgeous yeah. art that needs to be commented on. Yeah, so yeah. Um, I have something about the the Alex and the Lorna and the Bobby scene. Do you have anything before that? Not really. I, only the, you know about the artwork itself, the, the nice splash page there of the Skycraft flying yeah. over the Antarctic. But, you know, one thing we didn't yeah. talk about was the, the cover. True. <laughs> let's yeah. backtrack a bit and uh, let's, let's do the cover uh, because right. there, there's that interesting little tidbit. So <laughs> what an amazing cover, having all of the original X-Men uh, on the front cover, well, original X-Men in their graduation costumes. True. And yep. Professor X there behind them. And I'm trying to think, um, I, I was trying to see if this is sort of an homage to a previous cover of some sort. Well, I was just going to say, there are so many covers that are kind of yeah. similar. Because when I look at this, I can I immediately think of X-Factor cover. right. It's not exactly yeah. the same, but they're doing a similar thing. They're all coming forward, um, you know. Cyclops running forward, Angel, uh, the Beast is now is the furry Beast, of course, but he's he's swinging off a stalactite, and yeah, it's very yeah, similar right now. And it is they're almost in exactly the same positions. Yeah, almost. Yeah, they're all they're all, they're all more centralized on, yes. on this. Yeah. But yeah, but the, yeah, it's very, very yeah, you're, similar. You're, you're doing more of a, a head-on visual of them rather yeah. than more off to the side of the X Factor One. Uh, wow, that's mm -hmm. really cool. Yeah, and mm -hmm. giant size X Men One, of course, uh, and not uh, yeah. the same, yeah, but, but kind of if you had the page with the as if this this cover they were bursting out, kind of a very similar design mm -hmm. where they were bursting out. Um, yeah. So very, very similar design elements. So it's really kind of cool. So what's the fun little tidbit that you found about the covers of X-Men Hidden Years? Okay, right. So, yeah, as you're aware, X-Men The Hidden Years was a new title. So, of course, it's numbered from number one, etc. as we go along. But going back to X-Men, the original series, as we know, the final original story was in issue 66. So what 
Byrne was probably thinking here is if these stories had carried on immediately after issue 66, then this issue would have actually mm -hmm. been issue 67 and the next one 68 and so on. So on the cover of each issue of X-Men The Hidden Years, as well as the official number, which is one in this case, Byrne has also hidden a number that corresponds to if the story had carried on after 66. So somewhere on the cover, you should find a number 67. Now, some of these numbers are fairly easy to find if you study the cover. Some of them not so easy. And I didn't know about this from the very beginning. I think I only first found out about these hidden numbers about 10 years or so ago. I read something where it said about the hidden numbers. And then I remembered I'd seen these squiggles on some of the covers and I thought at the time, oh, that looks like a number such uh -huh. and such. Isn't, isn't that funny? And then, of course, when I read that, I thought, oh, that's why, because it was that number. There should be a number on every issue that corresponds likewise. So I started looking for the rest of them then. Yeah. And so, yes, on this cover, there is a number 67. Have you found I have. That? Right below Cyclops's hand. So for, yeah, so for anyone listening who didn't know about this before or who hasn't located oh, the number, so. yeah, as you say, just to the left of Cyclops' left hand, as we look at it, on the rock that sort of sticks out, you will see the number 67. Very cool. Very cool. I didn't know about Ooh. that coming out either. <laughs> uh, and I didn't know about it oh. until you mentioned it while we were preparing. <laughs> yeah. so, and and John Byrne is, uh, likes to hide things in rubble. He loves these hidden numbers, yeah, because as you know from the... Uh, from the new X-Men where he puts the numbers like 500 to mark his 500th uh, panel or page of, of artwork. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, fun stuff. It's the same kind of thing. So yeah, there it is. That's number 67. And on every cover, there is this hidden number. Um, how many, have you had a look for all of them? Not yet. Uh, I have looked ahead a few, okay. but not all of them. I have found, at this point, I have found all except two. There's only two of them. One of them, I think I know it, but I'm not 100% on it, which is why I'm not counting it. And then one of the covers, I really can't <laughs> find it. But I have a theory about that. And when we get to that issue, I will explain. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. But as I say, some of the numbers fairly easy because, yeah, once you know the 67 is there, it's quite easy. Yeah, It sort of jumps out at you when you know yeah, where to look. But, but some of the numbers on some of the other issues, not so oh, easy. No, no. <laughs> it's took me a while. It's took me a while to find some of them. Yeah. But it's a good little game. I mean, I don't know, somewhere on the Internet, that somebody may have put a list which tells you where every number on every issue is, but I don't want to know about that because <laughs> I've had fun finding the numbers. So my little discovery about the, the interactions with Bobby and Lorna and Havoc is uh, I, have, I was looking through my Essential, uh, Classic Essential Volume 3, 
which takes us all the way up to 66 and includes a lot of the appearances, including Amazing Fantasy of the X-Men or of members of the X-Men in, in books, all the way up to Hulk uh, 161. And it includes the covers, the, the new covers for the reprint issues that were created. So um, it's really cool. Uh, and I think it was reprinted also as an epic collection in color, but since I had it here as an essential, I, I didn't pick it up. But I was happened to just be glancing through. I wanted to kind of familiarize myself with some of the stuff, uh, but then realizing that all of this is going to take place before a lot of these, but uh, I'm not sure. So in Hulk 150, Havoc and Polaris, and Lorna is looking for Havoc. He's out in the desert, which of course that's where the Hulk is, and she's trying to find him to get him back for the professor for some reason. And then they do a little flashback. He left the team because uh, they got into a fight about over Lorna, of course. And ah. so um, there's a couple of panels which are almost the exact same as the ones that he drew here. Only Havoc's in costume, Polaris is in costume. And uh, it's not exactly the same, but um, some of the dialogue is copied over and it's very close to it so I, I was just wondering if maybe he was just expanding on this but havoc and polaris kind of stick around for a while so i'm not sure exactly that but i thought it was interesting mm. little yeah. side note there yeah it could be Vern's uh, burns kind of version of that yeah <laughs> yeah because he sometimes does that he'll relate to something as you say that's already been in another issue uh, earlier, but he changes something slightly, like it might be the look or what happens next. Yeah, so you could be right. It could be the same little uh, scuffle, if you like, <laughs> over Lorna. Yeah. yeah. So, mm. uh, but then when we flip over the page, man, that beautiful two-page spread in the Savage Land of the Dinosaurs when they... Uh, yeah, yeah. Actually, on on the page just before that, that picture of Angel diving down from the Skycraft, I think, is really nice. Yeah. It's coming out of the Skycraft. Yeah. yeah, some really good tight visuals on that. And I love that he's having the blue costume. This is my favorite Angel costume is this blue and white one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, the red and white uh, equivalent <laughs> that he had later. Yeah. It just changed the color. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they were the, that, well, that's a good costume. Better than the one he first got when they got their individual. Oh, yeah, the yellow one with the red harness? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Didn't like that one, really. Yeah, so some very good stuff. It, maybe it's due to a lot of the Palmer inks, but a mm. lot of it is very reminiscent of as we were. It's almost seamless from issue the previous few issues, yeah, 65, yeah. 4, 6, all of that. Mm. Uh, the the beast the look of hank is pretty much the cyclops's visor is not that giant overgrown thing that cockroach no, designed it's the original one although i like the overgrown thing as you put it yeah i, I like that. i like the big one mm. yep yep yeah and, and the attention to it uh that burn has is that a couple of pages in when he jumps in to um, clear the path for the landing he has to touch the sides to open it. So that's that's reminiscent of the original X-Men years as well. Uh, yeah, true. Yeah, he's touching the sides of his visor. Yeah, he's not got 
he'd not yeah but he he did have the hand control before this i'm sure he did in earlier stories uh yeah in the issues kind of like in the late 40s 50s 60s he'd got the hand control and then I like I like the the final panel of our Savage Land section of the story where you just see the costume laying there with its arms crossed in front of it like it's a dead person. Mm. <laughs> mm. Oh, yeah, yeah, the gloves across yeah across the chest. So dramatic. Yeah, nobody, nobody there. Yeah, the body's gone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I love the throughout the whole of these. I love the what they call the full bleed artwork again reminiscent of adams yeah mm -hmm. so you don't you don't always have a border yeah the picture goes all the way to the edge of the pages yeah so some of these pictures really nice yeah they're really big even in the finished issue size i'd like to see some of the original you know artwork pages when it was colored mhm mm at, at full size you like know like an artist rendition yeah yeah they'd be fabulous yeah and, and again he's when he really has time and he puts his mind to it he's so good on the facial expressions mm. putting them in like you said on that that image of angel flying out you know really good expressions there the next page where beast is doing the controls mm -hmm. you, know, you can see the the grimace in his his mouth and his eyes, you know, the eyebrows furling, kind of looking at that. So um, Jean's expressions here and there, you know, he really kind of nails them so well. Yeah, she's so looking I'm, worried there when the beast, yeah. Oh, it's, so I really appreciate that. I'm, I'm a little bit kind of, it almost seems like he de-aged Lorna a bit. In the original run, I've always imagined her to be uh, about 20. Here it's kind of like she's 16. I'm not sure if that's just the way he's drawing her her hair but... now, now to me it varies uh for example if you look at if you look at the page after the one where havoc's blasting all the trees if you go to the next page where there's alex and lorna thinking what's happened have i killed the ice man um the the, the picture where the piece of ice hits it's Lorna in the head. She looks about the right age, as you say there. She looks like somebody who could be 20, 21. But then on the next page in the top two pictures, then she looks younger, as you comment. It yeah. kind of changes depending on which panel he's drawing there. <laughs> and then when she's shouting at him saying, I'm not your girlfriend, <laughs> it's like she, she's aged up again. She's gone back to the 20-year-old look. Mm. So yeah, um, beautiful artwork, great story, great start yeah. to a story. And and then we, we, of course, come to the new epilogue. <laughs> Amphibian is back. Uh, Amphibian yeah. was from the original Savage Land Mutates yeah. back yeah. when. And uh, uh, so great to see him there. And But it's just interesting. Um, obviously, he's not dead because we've got this astral projection thing. But mm -hmm. um, Amphibian, of course, Amphibious, of course, doesn't know because he's basically a savage land mutate that's been brought back so uh, but what are we going to as it suggests for the title of the next episode the ghost and the darkness mm. so a really cool issue to start with what did you think of it overall oh yeah fabulous excellent <laughs> I you, I can't yeah you, you can't really get me to say much uh, bad about John Byrne stuff. Uh, I'm a, 
Yeah, I'm a bit biased <laughs> with Burn. Yeah, and this is, yeah, I, I like, uh, I mean, not everybody does, but I like Tom Palmer inking Burn. I like Tom Palmer inking a lot of artists, actually. Yeah. But not everybody does. Some people say, oh, Tom Palmer, he kind of overwhelms the artwork, you know, of the artist. But, but some, but I can't help but think, but yeah, but in most cases, for me anyway, he makes it look better. <laughs> Can I say that? <laughs> he makes it look good. So, And the nice thing is, is he brings that connection to the original series that they want. Yeah, in this case. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And, and you know, yeah. I've... I never, when I was a kid, I never understood what an inker was or did. I thought they're the ones who like drew over letters because ink letters. But I, I... yeah, right. Well, I'm gonna. Say, I was similar to you in that. Yeah, I thought an inker literally just inked the lines that have all been drawn. You know what I mean? Like just going over and literally inking them. So they were a pencil. Now they're ink. So they're there for good. Yeah. That's all I thought the inker did. Oh, and a bit of. Uh, as I learned when I got my How to Draw Marvel, the sorry, How to Draw Heroes the Marvel yep. way, uh, it does explain in there about the Incas doing shading and background stuff as well. So I realized then that, oh, okay, they do put in the shading parts and the backgrounds and things like that. But I didn't realize that sometimes they can have a bigger effect on the finished art than the artist himself who who draws it. So uh, I think here that Palmer was really good to me at, for me, or for me in this issue, maintaining Burns style, but also filling it in. And you see his style in there as well. I thought for me, for me, it's a good mix. I I have a good point. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I thought the same, although it's Palmer and you can see it is, but you can also see, of course, that it's Burns. He does not stifle the burn artwork, yeah. or he doesn't for me anyway. Yeah. Now, so do you still have the original, or did you buy? Were you able to buy the omnibus or the reprint that came? No, I've just got I've just got the original yeah. issues. I am thankful that I do have the essentials for like issues forty nine through the end, but I, I did buy the epic. Well, I've got the essentials X Men up to. 53 and then from 54 to 66 i've actually got a marvel masterwork aha there you go which has all of the stuff that you said you've got in yours but it hasn't got those extra stories where the the, the x-men used to appear in sort of guest slots it's got those reproduced you know when you said about the new covers when they did the classics again and all that. It's got those all in full colour. The ones done by Mike Zeck. Mm-hmm. Zeck and Palmer did some covers for for a, for a, a, replay, a reprint uh, edition. X-Men Visionaries cover. It's got the print of that in colour. And it's got some copies of the finished art coloured pages from Adams's run. Mm. And even, yeah, it's got a copy of an unused cover for X-Men 56. Yeah. Which is the one with the living monolith. Yeah. And it's, yeah, here they've got the characters all strapped to the word X-Men. They're all kind of stuck on 
the word X-Men all like flies on flypaper. <laughs> they didn't go with that one in the end. I think that's why, because they didn't like the way the figures covered up the word X-Men. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, this cover was recreated by Byrne again for issue, was it 135, where Phoenix yes. is crushing the word X-Men yep. in her hands like that. Yeah. Yep. The, uh, X, yeah. So I have all those X-Men now yeah, up to the end of their original run. All right, then. Wow. So, yeah, that brings us to the end of, yeah, yeah, the first issue of The Hidden Years, X-Men Hidden Years. Mm. Well, Nigel, you want to take us out? You have us uh, anything else? Uh, well, just uh, where, where can we, where can they find us? Uh, if they want to get in touch, well, they can email they can email us, yeah. <laughs> Got to get burned at gmail.com and uh, find us on the Facebook page. Third Degree Burn. Third Degree Burn. And I'm also can be found on Facebook. Uh, and you can, you can find me in Marvel in the 1980s. Yep. I love your group, the Marvel in 1980s. Oh, thank you. It's always fun to uh, get engaged with some of those things, so that's a lot of fun. Yeah, and yeah, it, it's it's slowly growing. Uh, I think we got forty nine members now at the last count. Uh, I want one more, one more person to join to make it fifties up, and we'll have a celebration. Yeah. All right, great. Okay, so yeah, this join us next time. We'll, we're not sure how, what the schedule will be, but uh, we'll get them up and loaded up. Uh, Tim and Brian can. Load them on as they as they fit, see fit, and uh, we'll see you next time on Sideburns X Men Hidden Years. Yes, thank you, and uh, have a good time, John. I'll speak to you again. Are we really going to see dinosaurs? Dinosaurs are the easy part, so keep your guard up. Who's the zit case? That's Garrock, some goofy legend Kazar told us about last time we were here. His worshippers believed his soul inhabited the very soil of this land. If you ask me, that's a good place to leave me. Thanks for listening. You can find us and many other great shows at tutufreaks.com. That's T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S.com. Third Degree Burn is spelled with the number three, R-D-D-E-G-R-E-E-B-Y-R-N-E, and is part of the Tutu Freaks network of shows. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just look for Third Degree Burn, spelled with the number three, and Burn spelled B-Y-R-N-E. Compliments, complaints, and recipes can be sent to gottagetburned at gmail.com. That's G-O-T-T-A-G-E-T-B-Y-R-N-E-D at gmail.com. Drop us a line and tell us how we're doing. Till next time, this has been Third Degree Burn. Some men aren't looking for anything logical, like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn.